Lesson 7 for August 8 to 14, Jesus the Master of Missions. Sabbath afternoon, August 8. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week, and it means so much to us because it shows us who you are and how you relate to us and how we relate to those around us. And as we open your word this week and we look at the life of Jesus and how he related to others in sharing your love to them, we pray that our hearts may be changed, our hearts may be softened, that we may be guided by your word this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 20 and verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Let's read that again, John 20 and verse 21. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. According to Scripture, a core activity of the Trinity is mission. Father, Son and Holy Spirit are involved in saving humanity. Their word began at the fall and continues through until the end. Father, Son and Holy Spirit will then restore this redeemed world to full unity with the divine will. According to the Gospels, Jesus underwent the radical change into human form necessary for him to succeed in his mission. In Jesus Christ, the meaning of history comes into focus, and the total mission activity of God becomes coherent, and the deepest needs of humans for meaningful existence are fulfilled. In the New Testament, we are made acquainted with the purposes of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We find here how he outlines the program for mission, and we get glimpses of how Jesus met people from other nations, people of other faiths, In the Word of God, we can see the incredible saving activity of God on behalf of fallen humanity. Sunday, August 9, Jesus in the Old Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 9 reads, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Besides being great verses about the futility of salvation by works, these verses reveal the eternal nature of salvation. They show that the plan for our redemption had been formulated long, long ago. So it's no wonder that all through the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is revealed in one way or another, especially powerful are the prophecies which clearly show that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Question. Read the following Old Testament texts, all applied to Jesus. What do they say about him and his role as Messiah? Well, first of all, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined." Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us is born a child, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth." and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. I the Lord have called you in righteousness, and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, this is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The prophet Isaiah describes the mission of Jesus with these words, and it's part of what we've just read. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. 
I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And so to finish today, dwell on the incredible idea that Jesus, the Creator, took upon himself our humanity, and in that humanity lived and died as he did. What great hope does this offer you in a world that, in and of itself, offers no hope at all? Monday, August 10, The Desire of Ages Jesus Christ is Lord of both the Church and the world. His coming is a fulfilment of the Old Testament expectations of a saved community that would extend far beyond the Jewish people. The coming of Jesus, especially his suffering and resurrection, ushered in a new age in which the distinction between Jew and Gentile, as far as the Gospel is concerned, disappears. Jerusalem would remain the centre at least for a while. However, the point of departure was no longer Herod's temple in Jerusalem, but the Jews converted to Christ. They had become the living temple. These Christian Jews would then be the remnant of Israel at that time in the early church, the ones called to bring the gospel to the world. This announcement of the worldwide universal mission of Christ as Saviour of all nations was repeated at his birth, during his childhood, and at his baptism. Question. What do the following texts teach about the universal mission of Jesus to the world? First of all, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And the same chapter, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 33. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marvelled at those things which were spoken of him. And the next chapter, Luke chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. And he went into all the region about Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And the last text is John chapter 1 and verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No question, Jesus came as the Saviour for all humanity. What does this truth mean for us in the context of mission? As we read in the Testimonies for the Church, volume 6, page 29, the missionary spirit needs to be revived in our churches. Every member of the church should study how to help forward the work of God, both in home missions and in foreign countries. Scarcely a thousandth part of the work is being done that ought to be done in missionary fields. God calls upon his workers to annex new territory for him. There are rich fields of toil waiting for the faithful worker. Tuesday, August 11, Mission to the Jews Matthew chapter 15 verse 24 reads, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Between his first public appearance and his crucifixion, Jesus focused his ministry almost solely on the Jewish people, particularly in Galilee. The Lord addressed himself first to Israel. Before the cross, there are very few messages of good news to the Gentiles. Apparently, Jesus wanted to awaken the Jewish people to their place, purpose and role in God's overall mission for lost humanity. Israel was to have the opportunity to be the witness of God's message to the world. Question. Read Matthew chapter 10 verses 5 and 6. Why would Jesus say here what he did? How do we understand these words in the context of the universal scope of what Christ came to do? in the context of missions as a whole. Contrast this text with Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. So Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we contrast that with Matthew 28:19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
When we consider the life and ministry of Jesus, we must observe a clear distinction between his thinking, ideals, principles, and planning on one side, and the way he accomplished his purposes on the other. In his day-to-day life and ministry, he identified himself with Jewish culture, just as the Old Testament predicted of the Messiah. But the impact of his incarnation was universally applicable. Through his death, and resurrection, he would bear the sins of the world, as we read yesterday in John one twenty nine. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We detect here an important biblical principle for establishing mission. The first move is directed to creating a centre in order to establish a strong and stable geographical and cultural base. Israel and the Jewish people. When that had been accomplished, missions should next develop outward from the centre into ever-widening expanses. So to finish the day, think about your home church. How well does it model the ideas expressed above? That is, a strong and stable base that eventually is able to reach out to others. How can you avoid the danger which many churches face of being self-oriented worrying about your own needs to the neglect of witness and mission. Wednesday, August 12, Mission to the Gentiles Although Jesus spent the major part of his time among the Jews, serving them in their cultural context, he made clear in his teaching and ministry that his mission was universal. The gospel should be preached to the nations with Israel as the initial base. The salvation of the Gentiles is part of God's plan. It was embodied in Jesus' teaching. Question. How do the following teachings of Jesus indicate mission to non-Jewish people? First of all, we'll look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 14. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And Mark chapter 14, verse 9. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And Luke 14, verses 10 to 24. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you, that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. And Matthew 13, verses 36 to 43. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Despite the fact that Jesus ministered mainly among the Jews, there's no question that from the very start his mission was for the whole world. Right at his baptism, John the Baptist said it clearly. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. The word world, in the Greek cosmos, occurs about 100 times in the Gospels. About half of these refer to the worldwide scope of Jesus as the Redeemer. So to finish today, in the parable Jesus told in Luke 14:16-24, those invited made all sorts of excuses for not coming. Read those excuses again. On one level, none appeared unreasonable, did they? What important lesson should we take from this for ourselves? And here are the excuses. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come.
Thursday, August 13, The Great Commission Jesus spent the forty days between his resurrection and ascension primarily in preparing the disciples and his church for worldwide evangelism. The best-known and most quoted resurrection account is Matthew's. However, during this period there are other occasions during which the risen Christ could have given further details on the Gospel Commission. There are two appearances in Jerusalem, two in Galilee, one by the Sea of Tiberias, one on the hilltop, and the meeting reported in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Question. There are five structured occasions in the Gospel in which the Great Commission narrative is dealt with from various angles. On a mountain in Galilee in Matthew 28, at a table in Mark 16, in the upper room in John 20, on the beach in John 21, and just as Jesus was taken up into heaven in Acts chapter 1. What key points do all these incidents have in common? First of all, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And Mark chapter 16, verses 14 to 16, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And John chapter 20 Verses 19 to 23. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If ye forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If ye retain the sins of any, they are retained. And John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. And then Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? 
And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Under the power of the Holy Spirit and obeying the words of Jesus, the apostles quickly spread across the ancient world. Paul preached on the northern shore of the Mediterranean. Peter worked in Samaria. According to early Christian tradition, Matthew travelled to Ethiopia and Thomas to India. Though starting out small and with so much opposition through the grace of the Lord, these faithful followers were able to spread the gospel message to the world. Whatever their faults, weaknesses, fears, doubts and struggles, they accepted the call and worked for the salvation of the world. That is, what they learned about Jesus, what they got from Jesus, they sought to share with others. Isn't that what being a Christian is all about? And so to finish the day, what have you been given in Christ? How should God's gift to you through Christ influence your attitude toward witness and mission to others? Friday, August 14. According to Matthew, Jesus foretold that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's Matthew 24:14. At the same time, the scriptures make another point clear. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Matthew 24:36. Note also Jesus' words in Acts 1.7, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Thus, while the good news of the gospel has been preached and is being preached as never before, and while we believe that Christ's coming is soon, we must not get caught up in dates and speculating about dates. As we read in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 189, we are not to be engrossed with speculations in regard to the times and the seasons which God has not revealed. Jesus has told his disciples to watch, but not for a definite time. His followers are to be in the position of those who are listening for the orders of their captain. They are to watch, wait, pray, and work as they approach the time for the coming of the Lord. End of quote. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week. There are just two. One, despite the clear teaching on not setting dates for Christ's return, hardly a year goes by before we hear something in the news about some group of Christians setting a date for Christ's return. Why do you think people insist on doing this, other than as a good fundraising technique? After all, if Jesus is coming on June 19 of next year, or fill in any date you want, then what good is your money now? Why is it bad for the Christian witness in the world when these dates, year after year, are shown to be false? And question two. 
Think of the obstacles the early believers faced in the first few years of mission, especially considering that they were so small in number. What are some of the obstacles we face in mission today? What can we learn from the success of the early church that can help us to do what we have been so clearly called to do? Inside Story. Our mission story this week is titled Faithful Bride, Part 1. It's by Rina Murmu and it's from Bangladesh. Shanti was raised in a Christian home in Bangladesh. She was still quite young when her father died. Her mother struggled to feed her family. When Shanti was 13 years old, her mother gave her in marriage to a Hindu man. According to custom, when Shanti went to live with her husband's family, she was expected to take his religion. But Shanti refused. Her husband's family treated her badly, and everyone worked to separate Shanti from her Christian faith. But Shanti clung to her God. Shanti was expected to serve her mother-in-law, who treated her as a slave, shouting at her and denouncing her. Because Shanti refused to give up her faith in God, she was considered unclean and not allowed to work with food or utensils in the kitchen. But her mother-in-law made sure there was plenty of other work for the girl to do. Shanti's husband, Boudroy, was much older than Shanti and treated her kindly. But he was powerless to help his young bride, for he didn't dare defy his mother's orders. There was no escape for the young bride because the couple were expected to remain with the family until after the first child was born. Three years after they married, their first daughter, Rena, was born. Shanti tried to share her faith with her husband whenever she could, and over time he began to believe that Shanti was following the right religion. A Seventh-day Adventist pastor lived in the same village as Shanti. He visited the family and explained the church's beliefs, hoping to make Shanti's life a bit easier. Shanti's mother-in-law refused to listen to the pastor, but her father-in-law listened. The pastor returned to visit the family often, sharing his faith and Bible promises with the whole family, who were open to hearing them. As he worked in the village, the pastor found a number of people— who were interested in learning about the Bible. The pastor arranged to hold evangelistic meetings. Without Shanti's knowledge, her husband asked the pastor to study the Bible with him. Then he was secretly baptized. Shanti didn't know about her husband's interest until after he was baptized, but she was thrilled. Shanti's mother-in-law, however, was very unhappy to learn that her son had abandoned his gods to worship his wife's god. She growled under her breath when she saw Shanti and Boudroy going to church together. She often tried to prevent them from attending church. She would hide some household valuable and demand that the couple find it before they went to church. These searches often made the couple late. When her pranks no longer worked, Shanti's mother-in-law turned to her other daughter-in-law for help in breaking the spirits of Shanti and Boudroy. This daughter-in-law was selfish and often bickered and fought. She made life bitter for everyone. And I'm sorry, but this story is to be continued in next week's Inside Story. 
So make sure you listen to next week's lesson and inside story. Have a great Sabbath. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.